Good morning, Mosaic. My name is my name is Malcolm. I'm another one of the pastors here. It's a it's a joy to be with you in the house of the Lord one more time. Isaiah 27 is the end of a significant section of the book of Isaiah that started back in chapter 13. These past 15 chapters have driven home this one idea that God is king. The book of Isaiah is massive, with as many chapters as there are books in the Bible. It's quoted extensively in the New Testament, and it gives this soaring account of who God is and what God requires of God's people. And this is something that I've tried to press, particularly in my last three sermons on Babylon, Egypt, and Tyre, that each of these are cities and kingdoms that claim universal kingship. Babylon through its brutality, Egypt through its use of enslavement, and Tyre through its money. But in, con- but in contrast to all of those, the Lord utters judgment on each of those cities and, and, and nations and constantly speaks of his love and his care for his people. But the book of Isaiah also talks about this apocalyptic day of the Lord. And so we're going to bring all of these threads together in chapter 27, where a great mythological enemy of God shows up and where Isaiah gives us another vineyard song. It's it's in this text that we're reminded both of our great enemy and our great king. So I want to skip skip the first verse for now, because like most of the sermon is going to be about Leviathan, and I know that's what we're all really excited about, to find out like what is Leviathan. I want to spend like maybe seven or eight minutes talking about the rest of the passage, and then the rest of the sermon will will be about Leviathan, so don't worry. Okay, so instead, so let's start. Let's hear of God's love for his people. So verses, verses 2 to 6 are words of love, of kindness, and of cultivation. Verse 2, in that day, sing about, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me. I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will, will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. This passage is a direct contrast to a song of the Lord in Isaiah 5. It's another song about a vineyard. In this song, the Lord clears a vineyard of stones, he cultivates it, he gets a wine press ready, and what does that that vineyard yield? Bad fruit. Think about it. It's, it's It's like if you've got a close friend, and you've spent years building this relationship, and then they ghost you. You have a child who you spent 20 years pouring into them, nursing them, feeding them, loving them, housing them. And then one day your child turns to you, says they hate you, take your car, crash it, and you never hear from them again. Think about the betrayal that you would feel, the hurt, the the sinking hole in your chest when you think of this fractured relationship, a relationship that could have been beautiful but has instead been trampled. That's what the Lord saw in this vineyard which we're told is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. He, he freed them from Egypt. He, he freed them from slavery. He gave them a law. He gave them his presence. He gave them the sacrificial system. He, he protected them from harm. He fed them. He clothed them. He gave them water. And in, resp- and in response, they built idols. 
They oppressed one another and the poor. They, they accumulated wealth for themselves at the expense of their neighbors. They, they bought up wide swaths of land for profit in, instead of for, in, rather than for human welfare. They became captives of injustice. And in Isaiah 5, the Lord promised to remove his protection from the people and to allow briars and thorns to choke them. He promised to allow, to allow the elements to ravage the nation. Historically, he allowed Assyria and Babylon to scatter the people as judgment. But Isaiah 27 assures us that judgment is not the final word. His promises to his people remain the same. Redemption is promised, and so redemption is coming. Isaiah 27, 2-6, reverse the language of the vineyard, and they, and, they, and, they, and they remind us that God will set right everything that the enemy has torn asunder. Verse 6, that in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom, and fill all the world with fruit. This verse reminds us that God's redemption of his people is not just for their sake, but it's for the sake of the world, not just all of the people in it, but for the sake of creation itself. And verse 7 reminds us that we should have known this. Verse 7 says this, Has, has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who, those who struck her? Has she been killed as those, who were, as those were killed who killed her? So this is, God's, this is God's mercy specifically for his people. And that his mercy always extends to his people. He saved them from slavery. Would he really abandon them? No. And in verses 9 through 11, we see the fullness of this redemption. By this then, will Jacob's guilt be atoned for? And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces. No, no, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the wilderness. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare, when its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them. Verses 12 to 13 envision the Lord regathering the people from their exile, finally coming home to worship the God who redeemed them. But, but, this is only possible if verse 1 happens. Verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. So apparently, on the day of the Lord, some great enemy needs to be defeated. A great enemy needs to be punished. But what is this enemy? A lot of people have theories. Is it a, a dinosaur? Just a giant dinosaur that apparently opposes God? Is it, is it a whale? Is it some giant sea monster? Is it, is it as Thomas Hobbes describes in his work Leviathan, a metaphor for the state? What is it? And why should we care? So the first thing to notice about this passage is that it's a different kind of language. So, so the other oracles, the other, the, these other prophecies are aimed against nations that the people knew and that the people saw. So this is like us uttering judgments against evils that we see. Exploitation, murder, adultery, theft, pornography, oppression, all, like the list goes on. 
But what the scriptures remind us is that there is evil. There is more evil than just the evil that we see. There's evil that we don't see. Paul describes it in Ephesians 6 this way, that our our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul isn't joking, but I'm pretty sure this isn't the way that we actually live our lives. When 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 I was a teenager... Two of my favorite, uh, my, my, my favorite books to read. Um, Left Behind, the kids' series. There are 40 of them. Oh, so good. But see, I mean, I think it was good because, like, I knew it was fiction. Um, there's, there's, there's theology issues. But that and, and, and the books from the 80s, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. The Frank Peretti books. This is like spiritual warfare fiction. So like, so, 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 so it's so, so the, so the, so the people in the books are going through their lives and then, and, and, and you also get a glimpse into like angels and demons fighting like in, invisibly behind them and stuff. Oh, just great, just great stuff. But it's great stuff because I think, I think a lot of us want to, and I, and, and I think this is, this is actually one of the things that actually makes, uh, makes superhero movies so, so popular too. We all want to be part of a cosmic story. We all want to think that there's, that there's, more, that there's more to life than just, than just what we see. And the fact of the matter is, is that the scriptures tell us that, like, yeah, like, actually, that's, that's true. The invoking of Leviathan is a callback to pre-Israelite creation myths. So a number of the nations that surrounded Israel nations that Israel was in contact with, even the nations that enslaved and oppressed Israel, had myths about ancient serpents that had roles in the creation of the world. Ancient serpents that, that rivaled their gods in power. So for, so, for example, in the Babylonian creation myth, which is called the, the, the Enuma Elish, Marduk, one of the gods, defeats Tiamat, who's the primordial goddess of the sea. And what it's, 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 Tiamat is, is, is depicted as a, as a sea serpent or a, a dragon. And what, and what Marduk does, Marduk cuts Tiamat in half, and out of Tiamat's corpse, you get, you, you get the heavens and the earth. In Ugaritic, another ancient Near Eastern culture from which you get the mythology of Baal, or Baal, Baal fights an evil serpent monster. In fact, this is how, this is how in this myth, this is how that fight is, is described. When you smote Litan, the fleeing serpent, finished off the twisted serpent, the tyrant with seven heads. Now remember Isaiah 27. The Lord will punish with his sword Leviathan, the gliding, otherwise translated fleeing, serpent. Leviathan, the coiling otherwise translated twisted serpent. You see, Isaiah 27.1 is basically a quote of a Ugaritic myth. It's Isaiah saying, look, Baal doesn't have this victory. The God of Israel will, and he will have it finally. What is Leviathan? 
Isaiah is using his knowledge of the myths of the surrounding nations and compiling them into a singular image of chaos and opposition to God. Leviathan is the evil that you cannot see and cannot stop. Leviathan is a reminder that not all evil and not all sin is traceable back to human beings. A lot of it is. But there's evil that you cannot explain, but that you know exists. Biblical scholar Walter Walter Brueggemann describes it this way. Leviathan is the great sea monster who embodies the autonomous recalcitrant force of evil that lies beneath the surface of the earth and that endlessly threatens the stability of creation. Here's something to know about the scriptures. They tell us that there is evil that we commit, but there is also evil outside of us. This is, this is what Paul is getting at when he describes sin, not just as a thing that we do, but as a power that we, apart from Christ, are enslaved to. The world is a similar power. The devil is a similar power. These are, these are, these are entities and forces that actually do have negative effects on people's lives. And you may have felt or sensed these things, and you don't have to be Pentecostal for that to be true. A number of years ago, uh, me, my dad, and my brother went to a wedding. And I don't think I have ever in my life felt the kind of spiritual darkness that I felt at that particular place. This was something that my brother and my dad both noticed. There was just a deep spiritual darkness that we couldn't, we, that we couldn't explain. Didn't stay for the reception. We 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 left soon after, and 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 as we were on the as we were on the highway, in the middle of the highway, just a car was just on fire. We were like, "Yeah, we got to get out of here." I don't know what's going on, but we need to get out. Sometimes, this is this is this is this part of what we need to understand about kind of the nature of evil. There are there there, there there's evil that we see, but then there's also evil that we don't see. But here's the thing, this, this scripture is not primarily about Leviathan. It's about God. And we come to these scriptures with the question, what does this say about God? Well, it says three things. Three very simple things. But things that we need to know for us to be comforted. One is that God is the only eternal one. Two is that God cares about you. And three, that God wins in the end. You see, a lot of the Near Eastern myths begin with battle. It's called theogony. That is battles between the gods. So the gods fight, and the earth is generally created out of their fights. Now, the scriptures have nothing to do with that. In Genesis 1, there's no fight. There's only the word of God. The Lord speaks, and things obey, period. No sass, no talking back, no dragging along. Let there be light, light. Let there be a firmament to to separate the waters. Sky is like, cool, got it. Dry ground, appear. The ground's like, yep, right to it. There is no fighting in Genesis 1 because the God of the scriptures is a God of all power. There is nothing before him or in real competition with him. When he speaks, things happen, period. He was there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning, and he's going to be there after the end. There is only one eternal being, the triune God of the scriptures. And why is that a comfort to you? Because evil is not eternal. Or as a songwriter says, trouble, trouble don't last always. 
And I'm so glad trouble don't last always. The scriptures remind us that evil had a beginning. We don't have a date, but according to Genesis, the cosmic battle begins in chapter 3, when the old snake goes after God's most prized creation, humanity. There the battle began. And in Genesis 3.15, we're actually told how the battle is going to end, that, that the representative or, or seed of the woman, the representative of humanity, is going to come up against the serpent's seed, and this, this human's heel is going to be struck, but the serpent's head is going to be crushed. It's a comfort because evil has a beginning, and evil will have an end. But it's also a comfort because of this second thing that this chapter tells us about God, and that is that God cares about you. He sets his love on his people. The story of the scriptures is a, is a picture of a God who actually loves his people. Other Near Eastern myths frame the gods as annoyed by humans. Their prayers are annoying. Their lives are annoying, but not so with the Lord. The Lord hears their cries when they face oppression. He cares deeply about them. And it's important for you to know that this is a God who cares deeply about you. You may have a number of dysfunctional relationships in your life, people who were supposed to love you but didn't, people who you were supposed to be able to trust but who revealed themselves to be untrustworthy. But the Lord is not like that, beloved. He is worth your trust because his love for you is deeper than you can imagine. But that, that, that eternality and that love has to be backed up. He can't just care. He has to actually be able to do something about it. He can't just, he can't just love. That, that love has to be backed up with loving power. Because the devil is busy. Sinful people are busy and scheming. Leviathan is lurking. All of your fears, many of them, are true, and actually evil is often worse than you think. This is, this is one of the things that I try to press with folks when, when we talk about issues of racial justice. Some people think that the issue is just the virulent, vocal racist who spews racial slurs or, discrimi or, or discriminates against individual people. That's surface-level stuff. You look behind that, and you see what a friend of mine calls aftermarket effects, that, that these thoughts and actions are the fruit of a broader culture and history that informed them and makes them viable. The exploitation, the, the inequality that we see around us, it may not have colored and white emblazoned on it, but it's a history that's ready to pounce on us and lurks around many corners. Traces back to a to a primordial impulse of greed, of, of, wanting, of wanting more at the expense of our neighbors. It's like a head of Leviathan, an evil that, like others, constantly seeks to consume us. That's not just true about racism. It's true of just, of just abuse that we suffer because often, often abuse begets abuse and chains are created that it appears to be impossible to break. There are acts that we see in the world around us that we can't explain. Acts of violence, acts of hate, acts of cruelty that it would, it would overwhelm us if we thought about them all the time. Often our fears are real and worse than we think. But, dear brother or dear sister, the comfort is that the Lord knows. The Lord knows all of it and he cares and he's going to get rid of all of it. 
The good news, dear sister, the good news, dear brother, is that the plan of salvation and its enacting is a personal, communal, and cosmic act. The Lord knows that you have an internal struggle with sin. He knows that you feel like you're enslaved to this ever-tightening tendrils of sin, that you feel like you can't stop going to that website. You can't stop yelling at your kids. You can't stop yelling at your husband. You can't stop accumulating for yourself at the expense of your neighbor. You can't stop wanting what your neighbor has. He knows. And Paul says that he has given you a way out. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation or trial has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted and tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. If you are a Christian, there is always a way out. And that's not me giving you just kind of pie in the sky stuff, just, just hope. No, 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 no. Like, this is what the Lord says. But those are just your personal issues. Because we also know that sin breaks our relationships. Our families are not as they ought to be. Our churches are not as they ought to be. It's one of the things I press about our culture and our economy. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's essentially a pot to separate us from one another. To divide us in order to conquer us. The, the rugged individualism that we're constantly told to imbibe tells us if we're suffering, it's our fault. Your kids are acting up too bad. What did you do wrong? That's on you to deal with it. Your relationships are broken? Tough. What did you do wrong? At no point are we encouraged to lean on one another because who really trusts other people these days? Sin breaks our communities all the time. And yet the salvation that Christ offers is manifested in a new community. States, cities, these other communities that we find ourselves in have the benefits of common grace, yes, but they will never be as they ought. So yes, we fight and we vote for proximate justice, but don't put your hope in the world suddenly operating by the logic of the kingdom of God. Instead, commit to the building and the strengthening of a new community that Christ has bought by his blood, the church. Though sin is still present here, repentance also ought to be present here. Though there is pain in the community bound by the Spirit, there must be healing. I think one of our issues as a community is that uh, our expectations of one another are too low. If it's true that the Lord has bound us by the Spirit, we have other people who the Lord has called to come alongside us in the midst of our struggles with the heads of Leviathan. When your kids drive you crazy, there are people in this church who you are supposed to be able to ask, please help me. And if they don't do that, come to your pastors and we will talk to them. Because this is what the church is supposed to be. This is the kind of community that we're supposed to be. This is one of the things that it's just, it, 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 it constantly tears at me. I'm like, I want the church to be what the Lord says it's supposed to be. But lastly, that's just the communal piece. Sin's personal and communal. Salvation has to be personal and communal. But it's also cosmic. That's what this text is about. 
Leviathan is not just this thing that you personally struggle with or this thing that our communities struggle with. No, 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 no. Sin and, and, and the powers that are all summed up in Isaiah's invocation of the cosmic power of Leviathan, it creates cosmic chaos. This is what Tiamat represented, primordial chaos. It's what the sea represents. So I think, I think the fact that we have cruise ships it, 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 it like makes us forget like how, how chaotic the ocean is. Like do, we have massive ships, ships that you can just sleep on and like not think about the fact that you're on the ocean. For the people who are reading, for the people who are reading these texts, like the sea is chaos. Like when you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, you're at the mercy, you're at the mercy of the weather. It's unpredictable. There's no defense. And the powers of evil would like us to think that we're in that same position when, when we go through our lives. That chaos reigns. That death lurks around every corner. That we would live best in fear. And the serpent in Genesis 3 continues this narrative. He encourages Adam and Eve to, to question the word of God, to question God's goodness. After all, sure, he gave you all of creation to enjoy. But what about that tree over there? What about that, that tree that he told you not to eat from? What is it about that tree that's really forbidden? I mean, never mind the vast freedom that he's given you. No, no. What about this one tree that he told you not to, not to touch? You see, brothers and sisters, that, that cosmic battle suffuses the apocalyptic literature of the scriptures. And beginning in Genesis 3, the Lord battled with evil, and we're actually given a profound example of what God's personal communal and cosmic victory looks like in the New Testament. And is it, is it an epic battle? Kind of. It definitely doesn't look like one. It's a cross. This, this Roman form of execution, this shameful method of execution was what Jesus suffered. Jesus, the eternal son of God, creator of the universe, who, who, who took on flesh to live a life in solidarity with those who were under the yoke of sin, under the yoke of the world, under the yoke of fear of Leviathan, that, that unseen evil. He lived a full life and declared, even in his ministry, power over all things, power over the weather, power over demons, power over creation. And in fact, he didn't have to die, but he chose to. He submitted himself even to death in order to defeat death, that enemy that keeps us all afraid. And we're told in one of my favorite texts of Scripture that we confessed earlier, that, that in, it's, it's, it's Colossians 2, that, 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 that when we were dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ, forgiving us of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord.
my soul. And here's the best part. Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, God, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in and the next word is a little ambiguous. It could, be, it could be him, it could be it. So it could be Christ, it could be the cross. I like to think it's both. Christ, by his cross, embarrassed the powers, defanged and declawed them, took away their abilities to truly terrorize. I saw, um, I saw Quantum Mania and, uh, and Creed Three in the same weekend because Jonathan Majors is just great, big fan. But he's also swole. This brother is swole. And so, and so when Ant-Man went, went, went like hand-to-hand -hand with him, my first thought was like, yeah, this ain't gonna work. Kang is gonna snap him like a twig. And imagine that that's what the battle between Jesus and Leviathan looked like from the outside. And yet we are told that Jesus' victory is total. That chaos will be no more. Evil will be no more. Pain will be no more. That's what Revelation 21.1 says. When, he, when, when, when John says, Then I saw a new heaven and, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea is not just about water. The sea is about chaos and fear. And John is telling us, as Isaiah did in the beginning of Isaiah 27, that Leviathan loses. That a land of plenty is coming where you will no longer need to scrape to survive. That a new reality is coming that will invite the nations rather than exclude them. That those who were spread far and wide will be reunited. That personal redemption will take place. That communal redemption will take place. And that cosmic redemption will take place. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, this chapter is a chapter of hope. Some of you are in, are in situations that you can't think past. Some of you may weep every day from being overwhelmed. Your closest relationships feel like, feel like they're breaking apart. You have no idea what your future holds. It seems like no one understands. I get it. You're experiencing a world in which Leviathan, though, though, though defeated, still roams. Christ rules, but we don't see it yet. And so here is my encouragement to you. If you are in Christ... You have the victory. You have hope. You are not powerless. The eternal bearer of all power has chosen to take up residence in you if you repent and believe. There is no trial that you cannot bear, no temptation that you cannot face. The dragon loses, sister. The dragon loses, brother. The king reigned, reigns, and will reign. Trouble don't last always. So we join hands and join lives with our brothers and sisters who have been called to endure with us. We lean on their prayers. We lean on one another. And we offer our lives for one another. That is the most important thing that we can do. Our Savior has told us to love one another as Christ has loved us. If we live in that way, Leviathan will have no foothold. And we will be able to bear witness to the personal, communal, and cosmic reality that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord. Amen? Let's pray.